You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Ah, yes. How many times today has someone said, may the fourth be with you? Not enough. (laughs) Never enough, according to Fitz and our producer, Stosh, who has accounted for at least 99 of 100 that all of you have heard wandering around today. It is May 4th. It is Star Wars Day. And Fitz, usually the Yankees are known as the evil empire, but tonight... It is the Astros who are the dark side entering Yankee Stadium. And for the first time, really hearing it from the fans who have been waiting for quite some time to express their displeasure, including this guy who our own June Lee encountered in an Oscar the Grouch costume. Where did I get this whole outfit? I actually ordered this on Amazon. It took me about three weeks because there's going to be a lot of fans ordering this costume. It was in back order. So that's how long it took. And we are excited and we are going to give it to them tonight. You know what I want to say? You guys stink! You don't belong in New York! You don't belong! You're not allowed to have a rivalry! Let's go! And today, we are all New Yorkers because we're all here (laughs) to tell the Astros that you don't belong here and it's not a real rivalry. We're going to bang the trash can and we're going to show you who's boss, okay? It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain. Jason Fitz with you, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by... Progressive Insurance Fits. We've waited a long time for some of the best in the league, and by best I mean most angered and best at trash talking to get their shots at the Astros. And both teams coming in hot. Look, I, let's be real for a second. COVID in 2020 took a lot of everything from all of us. And in the sports world, it's easy to forget. Baseball fans have a very long memory, though. And th- I'm thankful for that in this moment. Like, I love that everybody's still fired up. Like, I was a little worried that by the time we got to this point where everybody was going to get to see the Astros in person, that maybe there'd be this softer, gentler version of it. Like, too much time had passed. But no, this is a, a real reminder that the breakup is still very real. The The hurt is very real for everybody involved in it. The cheating is very real for everybody involved in it. And I'm here for it. Like, I love the dynamic we're getting out of these two teams just because of the trash talking that comes with it. You, of course, remember that the Yankees lost to the Astros in seven games in the American League uh, Championship Series in 2017, and they are a little bit angry about what role the sign-stealing scandal may have played. And I want everyone out there, if you are not wanting the Astros to continue to be dogged from this for any reason, for instance, Dusty Baker, who keeps having to answer to it even though he wasn't involved, I'll give you that. Quit asking Dusty about it. He wasn't there. But ask the players? Absolutely. If you're like, oh, everybody cheats. There's other teams that probably cheated. I don't care if they probably cheated. We know that the Astros cheated. They admitted to it. We know how they did it. So they're going to hear it. I'm so, I'm actually not sorry. I was going to say I'm so sorry. I'm not sorry if you guys are frustrated and you want to defend the Astros or you think time is up and we, you know, know, the window has passed. The window has not passed, Fitz. We are getting these trash can jokes in. We are dressing like a Husker the Grouch, and we're doing whatever we need to get past this. Doing all of that on May the 4th with Star yes. Wars Day, which is equally like it is weird to be watching the broadcast, by the way, which is on ESPN and seeing I don't even know who was just talking. Somebody was in a full Darth Vader costume, helmet and everything. I have no idea. I just know that maybe could have used some platform shoes. Oh, Steve Levy. Steve <laughs> Levy, not tall enough to be Darth Vader. But you know what? Still, they're telling me it was Steve Levy doing a very nice job as Darth. I, I'm in for all of it. But Sarah, I also think it is remarkable how much justification 
comparison seems to come with the, well, they do it too, or this team has done that. Like the, the amount of arguing where we're like 12 year old kids. Yeah, but you did this. I don't right. understand. I mean, this is very clear cut. The Astros got busted. The Astros are now paying the price for it. And the price that you pay for that is when you go into these stadiums, fans are going to remind you, particularly yeah. in certain cities. And I love it. You still got to keep those rings. You didn't get suspended. You got off real easy. So suck it up and deal with the booze. Speaking of booze, by the way, if this Cubs-Dodgers game today had been in L.A., boy, would Clayton Kershaw have been hearing it. Ouch! Shortest career start ever. He lasted just one inning versus my Cubs in the first half of a doubleheader. Mercifully for him, I suppose it was only a seven-inning game, but he will have to sit through a second game tonight after giving up four runs in the first Cubs went on to win 7-1. to one. He threw 39 pitches in the first. Uh, his previous shortest career start was one in a third inning. Also came on May 4th in 2010. So the fourth is not with him, apparently, is the result of us of us uh, investigating Kershaw's efforts on the fourth. Um, you know, Fitz, we talked yesterday about the disappointment for this team and now losing May to Tommy John. But th- there's not a lot worse than having the shortest inning of your career happened in the first half of a doubleheader where you have to then sit for another baseball game after that. That's what's got me shook. Like, I hadn't thought about that angle of it until (laughs) right now. As you're saying it, you sit there and think, man, especially if you're Clayton Kershaw, like, you know who you are and how great you are, and you just get to sit there in the the stadium repeatedly thinking about what went wrong in this and how only the second time in his 361 starts that he allows four runs in the first inning, like, that just sits in your head. I mean, I can't, I cannot imagine how much aggression he has in his entire being by the time you get to the end of the second game of the doubleheader. But by the way, good for you and the Cubs. I mean, it's a, that's a big win. Well, especially you know when Plashke's going to always be trying to come for me and my Cubs. Uh, I appreciate it as as they scuffle and we hand them one in the first half. Well, we just need to get to. Uh, by grabbing the win tonight as well. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. One last baseball story tonight. Um, a couple days ago, the Mets suddenly started to pick up their bats. Their hitting looked good. Uh, everything started to feel different for them. And it was being attributed, as of a couple days ago, to Donnie Stevenson, a man who had apparently been hired or had somehow arrived in the hitter's room and had made these guys change their entire mindset. According to the broadcast, what we know about Donnie Stevenson is he's 215 pounds of pure muscle. His favorite song is Taking Care of Business. His favorite movie is Roadhouse. His coaching philosophy is Bring the Diesel and Rip Heaters. Now, we know all of these facts because of the interviews done with players who brought up Donnie, the birth of Donnie, and this new guy in this in the room and their grins are from ear to ear as soon as his name is brought up. But there's a lot of secrecy fits. They've been asked, is he invisible? Is he a real person? Who is Donnie? And I'm worried. I'm very worried. My imagination is that Donnie is one of the hitting coaches that are, you know, putting on a persona to get the guys fired up. And with both Chili Davis and uh, the assistant hitting coach Tom Slater being fired by the Mets, today 
I wonder if that means that Donnie is also gone. This was the secret to their success. The the real concern here is if Donnie's invisible and somebody in the organization is just afraid they're bad with names and faces and they're just agreeing that Donnie obviously must be one of the guys that they don't remember. I'm just imagining the press asking, you know, ownership or the front office about Donnie and everyone's like, oh yeah, love the guy, love the guy. Then they leave. It's like, who's Donnie? Like this thing could perpetuate for a very long time if they've got people there that are afraid to admit that they have no idea who the hell they're talking about. First of all, I also want to alert you to somebody else who is a real person and not invisible named Hugh Quattlebaum. That, that is the minor you. league director of hitting development. And I just wanted to say the name. Hugh that guy a major league. When you got a major yeah. league get name, you get a major league yeah, job. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's Quattlebaum, absolutely right. Let's go. Um, anyway, I just wanted to point out that my fears about the departure of Donnie may be realized by the fact that the two men responsible for most of the coaching in that room have been fired today. Uh, this decision was made well before Donnie came around. And so uh, there was a lot of laughter and fun to be had around the Mets the last couple of days because of Donnie. And it's sort of a swift kick in the no-no places, as you would say, to have that followed up by the firing of both of their hitting coaches. Or Donnie is just so good they don't need anybody else in the That's building. That's very true. Maybe, maybe he, the, the whole place is being cheaper. like her. Yeah. If he's invisible. Like, can't cash those checks. Donnie definitely works for Bush Light or something. Like, you just give him really cheap beer, and he's like, yep, I'm in. I'll see you in the next city. Let's go. What if Donnie actually is just the Bush Light like, truck driver, and he stumbled through the wrong door and gave him a rousing speech that none of them could ever forget? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll investigate some more. We'll see if Donnie is still around. I really hope the Mets reporters follow up on that uh, after asking the real questions about Chili Davis's firing. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Coming up, Bill Barnwell put out a list of seven potential landing spots for Aaron Rodgers. We'll break down which trades look right to us next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Fitz will continue to sing along with various songs from... This is from like when they walk into the this these are not the droids the you're cantina. looking for. Yes. The, right? this, yeah, and let me tell you, Sarah, look at like that. I'm look just at, taking this the, off. Look the at rails. all that like, I've picked off without I, ever watching it. <laughs> my excitement for like the opportunity to go to Star Wars Galaxy Galaxy at uh, at, at Disneyland or Disney World is only because of when I was a little kid, like there were all these can like the cantina and then like Luke drank this blue milk that I wanted so badly and they mm-hmm. serve it there. Oh my god, I cannot wait to make it rain. In there when the world is reopened. <laughs> well, I'm excited for you. And I do intend on watching Star Wars movies at some point. I've seen the one, uh, but there's plenty more I've heard <laughs> that I should get into. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. We've been talking a lot about Aaron Rodgers, and we will continue to do so. We've got a couple guests today that are going to talk about what life is like over in Green Bay right now, how the how the uh, franchise is processing this, and then what life is like in, a, in somewhere like like Denver, where the Broncos are really high up on the list, and a lot of people are talking about a potential trade there. Bill Barnwell put together a list of spots um, that you could find on the dot com. Really thoughtful, as always, from Bill explaining, you know, which, which things make the most sense for both sides and what he actually sees happening. Worth noting a couple things, Fitz, and I think when you're going to look at any of these possible trades and landing spots to see how viable they are, you have to try to get in the minds of the Packers. And first of all, you have to wait till June first to do anything. If he's traded after June first, he counts twenty one point five. Uh, sorry, twenty one point one five million against the cap this year, seventeen point two next year. If traded today, he counts thirty eight point three five against the cap. Also, if he retires, he would owe the Packers thirty million dollars, right? Mm. And if he sits out for too long, it's a significant amount of money fifty thousand dollars per day that he misses with no ability for the team to waive the fines if he returns. So, I don't see him retiring. I don't see the Packers doing anything until after June 1st. So we could put those out there. 
the final question to ask yourself before you address these options, Fitz, is do they think that Jordan Love is ready? Because that's the deciding. Do we go somewhere and make a trade if they can't give us a quarterback back? Because Jordan Love was inactive for every game last year and ran the scout team. You want to thrust him into action as your starter because you can get a good deal with a team that has a lot of picks coming your way but doesn't have a quarterback to insert? You are then putting your faith that Jordan Love is ready and it won't be a massive step back for a team that's in win-now mode. Or if he's not ready, you need to go out and find a team that you can trade with that involves a meaningful and, and respectable quarterback in that deal. And I think that really whittles down which of these are the most reasonable. Well, and to that end, I mean, if Jordan Love, the 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 microscope is already going to be so on Jordan Love when he finally gets behind center, right? No matter what that situation looks like. Now, if you magnify all of this by having Aaron Rodgers get traded and now all of a sudden it's handed over to Jordan Love early, I mean, the the damage that can be done here is Mm -hmm. just catastrophic for everybody involved. And it's egg on everybody's face. I feel bad for Jordan Love, actually, the human being that had nothing to do with any of this. He's just going where he was drafted. Now he's trying to become a starting quarterback in the NFL. And that road gets really, really hairy if they trade him, he comes in and starts to play even slightly poorly at the beginning of the season. I cannot imagine the amount of pressure on a kid that, frankly, has never seen anything like that in his life. Yeah, it's only the third time in the last 15 seasons a first-round quarterback did not make a start in his rookie season. Uh, we also know that almost every single quarterback taken since the uh, rookie quarterback wage scale went to a certain amount uh, have, have started a game by, by year two. Um, so their decision to draft him told Aaron Rodgers and everybody else what their timeline was. And then he went out and won an MVP for the third time. And now the timeline looks a little sketchy. And most other places would say, we got to prioritize our superstar Hall of Famer and we'll figure out who's next eventually. I think potentially they're a little too up in their feels about how great it was last time when they had a successor for Brett Favre. They want to be the team that does that again. Unfortunately, this is not the same situation as Brett Favre. Aaron Rodgers is a, is an MVP right now, and he plans to play for another couple years. You've got him kind of hanging in the wind here. He's a lame duck in the sense that he's got no guaranteed money after this season. They can get rid of him pretty easily and move on, and he deserves better than that for what he's done for this franchise and the level of play he has. So that leaves you wondering, you know, if there really is no way to fix it, who do they do a deal with? Uh, the, the, the teams that Barnwell lays out are the Broncos, the Washington football team, the Miami Dolphins, the Giants— the Cleveland Browns, the Raiders, and the Titans. I want you to get to the Raiders in a second. I just want to tell you the two that stand out to me are the Titans because Ryan Tannehill is involved, and I do think that love is not ready yet. They need to get a trade that brings them a quarterback who can do the right things, and I think that's Tannehill. And the Browns, Baker Mayfield might be real unhappy about that, and so might some of the fans in both places, but Baker Mayfield coming in, and they would have a two-year window to see if he can be the guy and they can move on from love, is a much better situation to me than getting a whole bunch of pieces but having nothing at quarterback, which a lot of other teams in the league have. The quarterback is the thing everybody wants, and if you give one up and don't have a plan, you're in big trouble. I don't disagree with that. Spain and Fitz there, Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, I, I think, though, for me on that list, the two teams that stand out are the Broncos, and everybody's heard about the Broncos uh, ad nauseum, I think, but they have enough pieces that can be returned 
in trade, not just draft picks uh, existing, future draft picks, but also whichever of the quarterbacks in their room they choose to give up on right now. Uh, But the other one that I think is really interesting, frankly, is the Washington football team because Ryan Fitzpatrick, not particularly, obviously, somebody you're going to build around. But if you do believe Jordan Love is the future but is not ready, you could get Ryan Fitzpatrick back to be at least a placeholder. And then in this mock exercise, you would also get a 2022 first-round pick, 2022 second-round pick, then a 2023 first-round pick. I mean, that's a lot of equity to get back, and you would at least still get a quarterback that gives you the opportunity uh, to, to sort of be a placeholder for Green Bay. Conversely, for Washington, you get the one thing this roster sorely needs, which is a quarterback. I mean, the rest of this roster, they've got offensive weapons that are there. The offensive line looks like it's pretty good, and the defense looks like it's darn good. So Washington is actually in a really good spot if they could do the impossible and pull this trade off to put themselves in the Super Bowl conversation, uh, but it's within the same conference, and it has been made clear so many times that they do not want to trade him in the NFC. So I, I don't know that there's a clear-cut favorite if you take Washington out of that equation. Okay, so let's get to your Raiders. What do you think of that idea? It's a bad move, and I know that's a hot take. For whom? For the Raiders, it's a bad move. And the reason it's a bad move is that just being honest about the Raiders' roster top to bottom – the Raiders have some young players that may turn out to be pretty good, but they have a dreadful defense. And until we see otherwise, it is still a dreadful defense. So he would be being traded to a team that I think has a lot of holes in the secondary, a lot of holes on the defensive side of the ball. And then offensive line that may be good, may not be good. We have no idea with unproven wide receivers. So all of that to me says, even if he makes you a couple of games better, he doesn't make you better than Kansas City. And you would be mortgaging your future for an opportunity to try and win a Super Bowl now. I don't think, and I I, I genuinely disagree. I heard Greeny today say there's only four or five teams in the NFL that wouldn't be a Super Bowl favorite with Aaron Rodgers on the roster. I don't agree with that. I, I, the Raiders have too many holes in their on their team overall to be a Super Bowl caliber team, even with Aaron Rodgers as their quarterback. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, it's very different than all the conversations we were having pre-accusations around Deshaun Watson because – There were so many years. That's why he was sort of this unicorn type of being a tremendous player with tons of years left. It's just not the same situation with Aaron Rodgers. While I believe that him sitting behind Favre for a short amount of time and the fact that his body seems to be going well, um, he does have a couple years left. But his QBR was dropping precipitously leading up to last season when he, you know, became an MVP again. So there are certainly question marks again about how repeatable last year's success was. And there are certainly question marks about, you know, age catching up to him in meaningful ways after this season, after next season. So it's a bit different. And to your point, I can't imagine saying no to Aaron Rodgers, but it's actually a pretty wise and mature point of view to say they don't have the right pieces around to make it work, even if they do have a superstar quarterback. Um, And that's a lot of questions to be answered for the Raiders. (laughs) You don't say. That's why I drink. You know, that's yeah, why I got that's, the Charles Woodson whiskey. Why you eat it's just, sugar. It's just, it just yeah. helps me through it. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, we're going to head to Denver to discuss a potential Rodgers to Denver deal. Figure out what's on that side. And is Drew Locke a guy that can step into Green Bay and actually make the kind of plays that they need in order to maintain their success? We'll get into all of it next coming up on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Not ready to even conceptualize the possibility that Aaron Rodgers could end up the quarterback of the Broncos. But unfortunately, Sarah keeps reminding me that even if I consistently say that it can't happen, it still can. I don't have any sort of magic powers that will stop it. So we'll get some analysis on it, Sarah. I'm still working on it, though. Like, if there's a voodoo doll that could do nobody any harm and just keep this trade from ever happening, 
I would figure <laughs> out how to invent it. That's all I'm saying. Sarah, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Uh, we're going to head over to the Goodyear Hotline to get some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. That comes from Nick Ferguson. You can check him out on the Nick and Cecil Show, 104.3 The Fan in Denver. Former NFL safety played 10 seasons, including seasons with the Broncos. Nick, I'm a Raiders fan. I'm not ready for this. I can't. My, my soul can't handle Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers in the same division. So give me some idea in your mind of how close you think it is to happening right now that Aaron Rodgers becomes the quarterback of the Denver Broncos. First off, let me apologize to you beforehand for being a Raiders fan. That's right? fair. That's fair. Now that we got, <laughs> now we got that out of the way, I think this is uh, something that I would dare to say is 80% uh, possible because here's what we're waiting for here in Broncos country. We're waiting for the dreaded June 1st countdown. After June 1st, if the Packers were to trade Aaron Rodgers, it's not going to count that much against their cap as far as dead money is concerned. If they trade him before that, then they're going to have to take on the brunt of his contract. So we are very optimistic here in Denver, knowing as though you guys have Derek Carr, the Las Vegas Raiders, there's Justin Herbert with the Chargers, and, of course, the super kid himself, Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. Nick, you do a lot of local stuff over at 104.3 The Fan, so you hear from a lot of the fan base. What's the response been ever since the Broncos got floated as a possible spot and have sort of taken over as the the primary spot people are pointing to for Rodgers? They're, they're really excited, but, but no one wants to build up their hopes too high to be let down. Case in point, I mean, we all enjoy Christmas. And we all wanted that shiny new bike. But we went downstairs and it wasn't there. We felt that our parents and Santa Claus had let us down. So Mm -hmm. they want to make sure that they don't feel that particular way. But we love all the talk about Aaron Rodgers. It's it's sort of like when Peyton Manning decided, hey, he was coming to the Denver Broncos. It was an exciting time. And most people are looking at it like, hey, we don't care that George Peyton did not give us Justin Fields. But if we can get Aaron freaking Rodgers, it's a done deal. We can wipe our hands with it. It's a clean slate, and we'll forget about everything that's happened over the past couple of years. We're talking to Nick Ferguson. You can check him out on 104.3 The Fan in Denver, former NFL safety, played with the Broncos, Jets, and Texans. And, you know, you mentioned not getting Justin Fields. I I was a little surprised, I'll be honest, Nick, when Fields was there and the Broncos were on the clock, it just felt like maybe that made sense. In your mind, how close was that to happening? It was really close because George Payton had his eye on a certain quarterback, Vic Fangio and Pat Shermer, on another quarterback. Now, the conversation is Trey Lance and Justin Fields. Who was where with the conversation and who felt what, we don't really know. But we know that both of those quarterbacks were discussed heavily in the draft room. But when they were sitting at nine, Justin Fields was still there. And they were talking about it, but they started to say, well, What's more important to us at this particular point? Finding Hall of Famer or perennial Pro Bowl corners are very tough to come by. And knowing as though you're in a division where you have Justin Herbert and you have Patrick Mahomes, and knowing that most teams now, out of base personnel, it's 11 personnel. And you, being a Raiders fan, know that you guys have a big wide receiver. He's not a tight end a big wide receiver in Darren Waller. You needed to have someone that can match up with him. And Patrick Sertan Jr. actually gives the Broncos an opportunity to compete at that level. 
It's Spain and Fitz here. Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio talking to Nick Ferguson of 104.3 The Fan in Denver. The Nick and Cecil show, also a former safety, played 10 seasons for the Broncos, Jets, and Texans. Nick, the reason this Broncos trade stands out to me as not being maybe as, as likely as many believe is that I don't think Locke is an answer, and I don't think Jordan Love is ready. He was inactive all of last season doing scout team stuff. I, I I just it's really difficult to trade away a Hall of Famer, be the first one ever traded away the season after his Hall of Fame year, and get back a guy in lock that's not a starting quarterback in this league. You know, like a lot of the other trades involve a more sure thing at quarterback. Do you think that gets in the way here? Well, yeah, it, it does. And and here's the thing: there's a there's a lot of continuity throughout the coaching in the NFL. And Rich Gangarello, who was once our uh, offensive coordinator before going back to be the quarterback coach for the San Francisco 49ers, he knows Kyle. Kyle knows Matt LaFleur. So they can have that conversation between the three of them and say, well, do you think that Drew Locke can step in and add competition, you know, at that quarterback position? But here's what we do know, Sarah. We do know that Aaron Rodgers is really adamant about not going back to Green Bay. And he strikes me as a person when he puts his foot down he is putting his foot down. And he's the type of quarterback that if he had to, if pushed to the brink, he would decide to, you know what, okay, well, the Packers have screwed me. I'm going to go ahead and retire. I know I'm leaving a lot of money on the table, but I will be willing to walk away instead of going back to that three-ring circus that is the Green Bay Packers. So this is why the Broncos country faithful are really confident and they love all the conversation about you know, Aaron Rodgers and known as though you could have a guy like that come to your team and now you get Aaron Rodgers. Now we're talking Super Bowl. We're not even talking playoffs. Nick, you mentioned sort of you got Super Bowls with Aaron Rodgers. I would argue even without Aaron Rodgers, the Broncos have done a really nice job and I think they did a great job in the draft, frankly. Javante Williams, the running back in North Carolina, has a real opportunity to be a star. I mean, this offense looks like it's very good. I, I feel like they've at least put them in se- themselves in a situation where all Drew Locke has to do is not screw it up. Can he not screw it up? I, I wish I could tell you that was possible, but I can't. Based <laughs> on what I've seen last year, we're, we're talking about a quarterback. I think he went 15 touchdowns, 14 interceptions, and his completion rating or quarterback rating was about 54%. You can't really win – in those types of situations because you're putting your defense on the field for a large portion of plays, and they're going to be exhausted for, you know, you talk about now 17 weeks, you can't do it. That's, this is why I love the Teddy Bridgewater trade. You give up a six-rounder. Panthers are paying seven of the ten. You only have to play three of the ten. George Payton was familiar with him from the Minnesota Vikings days. So is Pat Shermer. And now you're saying, well, hey, Drew Locke's issue is his footwork, mechanics, anticipation, and decision-making. Teddy Bridgewater is the perfect – guess what? He's the perfect bridge. I called for this two years ago, and I took a shellacking from people uh, in the media, people who I work with, Broncos country, but I said, well, if you really understand, you have a rookie quarterback who hasn't really shown us anything. You bring in a guy that's familiar with the offense, he now brings him along. Because if John Elway, had he done that, Drew Lott and the conversation about him being an adequate quarterback, we would not have that conversation. But I do agree with you that the Broncos, even without Aaron Rodgers, they're in a good position because Teddy has shown 
that he is a competent quarterback, game manager or not, that mix with the defense and Javante Williams, like you mentioned, that's a great defense with a physical ground game, and that reminds me of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Nick, we appreciate your time. You guys can check out the Nick and Cecil Show on 104.3 The Fan in Denver. Nick Ferguson, thanks so much. Uh, sorry for all the things that I've said about you when you played, but, you know, uh, now we're <laughs> friends. So, you know, th- that's all we can do. Like, one, one step at a time, Nick. Thanks for coming on, brother. We appreciate you. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was telling, by the way. He mentioned all the quarterbacks to be scared of, and somehow Derek Carr's name wasn't said. He gave us the straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contract, no compromise. Uh, I'm interested to see what happens, obviously, moving forward with the Broncos particularly, because I think they've got a really stellar roster being built out, out there in Denver. Coming up, it's May the 4th. One team locked into the fourth spot in the East has at least one person very excited. You'll hear it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Music just makes me so happy. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel Lady, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Sarah, years ago when I was touring with a guy named Phil Vassar, we did a, we did a show with the Boston Pops, and uh, we I had done all the arrangements for the orchestra to play, and John Williams was conducting the orchestra. And so at the end of the night, John Williams came out to conduct Star Wars. And it was funny because Phil had been talking about one of his songs coming into that show that he was just really tired of performing constantly. And I'll never forget John Williams looked over at Phil and said, as tired as you are of playing Just Another Day in Paradise, I'm that tired of this. And then he walked out on stage (laughs) and conducted Star Wars with no music in front of him. He knows it so well. He didn't need the score, didn't need anything. So uh, I have very little in my life I ever had anybody sign that uh, with, around anything I was in, but I kept the main score that I had orchestrated and had John Williams sign it. It's, frame, it's framed. It's up in the house. I think classical music nerds in you know three generations will look back at uh, John Williams' work as probably the best classical music of my lifetime. So uh, the music alone is a good enough reason to just go out there and jam in. If you really want to get funky, you can check out the uh, disco version of Star Wars that they put out in the 70s. Oh, it's it is a delight. Do you think I should watch some of the movies first, or go find the disco version of the music from the seventies? I mean, I don't really live in an either or. You play the disco music <laughs> while you're popping the popcorn, and then you All watch. Right. Then you watch All the right. movies. Listen, I'm gonna just the same way that you learned how to swim by the end of last year. Oh wait, you uh-huh. didn't uh-huh. learn how to swim or ride a bike. You know what? I actually, you're right. Neither of those things. Those uh, things are far more important. But I did to life take a hot bath a few Star months Wars. ago, so a bath you know seems what? like that's almost swimming. You know what? We're going to get that. Up. We're going to put that somewhere that you have to own up to because I, re- I would like for you to learn how to ride a I bike a, and swim. I do, I do have a fenced in backyard now, so I've thought about with, with the backyard like where people can't see me fall. I've yeah, thought we're about gonna doing send, that. We're going to send some big person like Gojo over there to catch you while you're learning. Somebody needs to send me a free bike and that. then I'll be on it. Like I was free, just watching that Shit's Creek episode where both uh, both David and Alexis learned how to ride a bike uh, later right. in their lives. So See? you're not alone. Hey. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain and Jason Fitz. Let's put this uh, train back on the tracks here. We're talking about May the 4th. Well, speaking of 4th, Westbrook, Russell Westbrook last night with his performance, secured himself a guarantee that he will have a 4th season averaging a triple-double. That Westbrook doesn't get a ton of love from some folks because he is not a good jump shooter. He's mid-range is terrible. But... He gets a lot of credit for the statistics at the end of games, triple doubles among them. Oscar Robertson's the only player to average a triple double for a season. He did it once. And this means that Westbrook, even if he got zeros across the board for the rest of the regular season, would still do it a fourth time in his career. Mm. 
They've been good of late. It, it was a Wizards team that started off so poorly that it's nice to see what they're doing now. But Fitz, in the end, they're still below 500. They're still in 10th place. And if you read the excellent story by Kirk Goldsberry on ESPN.com, there's still so many questions swirling around Russell Westbrook's inefficiency. And so you can respect that when he has triple doubles, his team usually wins. And you can respect that he is a great player who has remarkable ability to set up teammates and is very efficient in assisting and in rebounds. While at the same time saying if you actually watch him night in and night out, plenty of times during the game, he's shooting terrible shots and making bad decisions. That's why I think the conversation about Russ is particularly difficult at times. Because you're right, they're eight and two in their last ten. The Wizards playing much better. They might get themselves into this playoff situation and a play-in situation, I should say. And then you never know what's going to happen. But uh, if you're Russ, your legacy is complicated because uh, the way that analytics have become so dominant in the sports talk conversation, I really do feel like in twenty, thirty years, people will look more more fondly on Russ than we are looking right now in this moment. The problem is, how do you put context? around somebody that you understand is doing something that's historic and doing incredible things, but it just isn't resulting in the kinds of wins we think it should for a team. And it's so difficult because you and I talk about how a win-loss is not a quarterback stat, right? But And so win-loss cannot just be put on one player, but it is really difficult to see his excellence on the court and see how it doesn't translate and not then have to have a nuanced conversation. Like, I don't think this is a matter of, of Russ's trash or Russ's great. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Like, this is Both. an amazing player yeah. that, that is frustrating because it's not getting more results for his team. Well, and because over the course of his career, he just hasn't been the guy who can lead his team to meaningful, repetitive playoff appearances. He gets to the playoffs. They do a decent job. And listen, he's playing in a time with guys like LeBron James that sort of dominate and Steph Curry and the Warriors. So um, running up against a wall of some of those great teams. But, you know, it's 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 not as black and white as just looking at the triple-double box scores afterwards, and it's certainly not as black and white as criticizing his jump shooting efficiency and bad shot selection. It's a little bit of both, and that's why he's so confounding at times. Also, when you called when you said his excellence, it sounded like a nickname for him, and that sounds like something he would really embrace. I mean, so I, mean, I'll I, I like it. the idea of him being called his excellence. By the way, speaking of guarantees, he guaranteed himself, like I said, a fourth season averaging a triple-double. The Knicks, with their win over the Grizzlies last night, which was their 12th win in 13 games, guaranteed their first winning record in a season since 2012-2013. And it's funny because it's all about expectations. The Knicks were not expected to be that great. Tom Thibodeau comes in and makes them relevant and in the playoff hunt, third in the Atlantic. And so something like guaranteeing a winning season is a cause for celebration, whereas other teams that would be sitting at, you know, 37 wins would think it was an off year. So it's all about your expectations. Uh, You're right about that. And by the way, the Knicks expectations like this is a fun ride next year. It's going to be out of control. Like the the conversation is just going to be be so annoying, especially because as the playoff seating stands right now, I mean, the Knicks will be taking on the Hawks, a team that I think they can beat in the first round of the playoffs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Knicks have a a real shot at, at advancing in the playoffs, which will only get certain people at the company to uh, be even more excited. You mean people like Stephen A. Smith, who said this today on First Take? Julius Randle, player with, with supposedly with nothing. Evidently, they got something. The number one defense in the NBA. Number one! No, Brooklyn what? Brooklyn what? New York City, well, baby. Molly, I'm, I'm, I'm just I saying. I I'm just glad you brought up the Lakers. Did you know that the Knicks and the Lakers have the same record right now? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. Did you know that? Did you know that? Wow. The New York Knicks and the Los Angeles Lakers have the same exact record. LeBron James, your crew. Anthony Davis, your crew. 
the New York Nets. <laughs> Dude, the laugh. The laugh is so good. And Stephen A. not the only one throwing a little shade. James Harden took the uh, week, uh, the New Yorker cover that had an illustration of the Nets in the forefront with the Knicks sort of chasing behind them. And he just cropped it and posted just the part with the Nets on it. So uh, the Knicks make it a lot of people sweaty, including those Nets that they're chasing. And yes, the Lakers, who somehow fits have the same record because of all the injuries. And now we add to that another two games, at least without LeBron, getting pretty Harry for the Lakers. Okay, so I'm starting to get a little puckered up. I'll be the first to admit it. <laughs> you know, it is finally happening. And by the way, I will say at least Stephen A. said at the beginning of that, like Julius Randle apparently playing with nobody, like like everybody's been discrediting the Knicks when in fact it was Stephen A. at the beginning of the year that was discrediting the Knicks. Like I, I love that uh, to get to win both sides of that argument for him. But <laughs> when you look at the Lakers, I, I mean, I'm the one that I feel like consistently has been saying doesn't matter when they get healthy, they'll be fine. And now you find out LeBron's going to miss a couple of more games his ankle was tight when he was in they didn't necessarily look great doing it nothing about the Lakers right now looks easy everything looks just like it's out of rhythm everything looks like they're trying too hard nothing seems to come gracefully for a team that I really thought that would be an easy thing to accomplish given what they did last year in the bubble they're three and seven in their last 10 and it just it's a painful watch every night so the Lakers I'm starting to get a little concerned because when you do sit back and watch the Clippers and we've asked a couple of our experts who get benefited if the Lakers are, are still injured. Uh, the Clippers are constantly on that answer, but I'll also say the Nuggets, Suns, and Jazz are playing basketball that is fun to watch. It, it just it looks better than what the Lakers are doing, and I understand that if they get healthy, all is fine, but I went from saying all is fine to saying all is fine, and I don't feel good about it at all. Yeah, a lot of questions left for the Lakers, and in the end, I think most of us agree, okay, but if they're healthy for the postseason, we'll feel okay about it. And there's an interesting statistic in the story from Kevin Pelton on .com right now. Todd Haberstro figuring out that a team's performance over the first 10 games of the season better predicts their playoff success than the last 10 games, even with roster changes in the interim. So the idea of like entering the playoffs hot or the idea that the Lakers would need to be at their best right before the postseason starts is actually a canard. It's not realistic, but that doesn't mean that if if they're unhealthy, that won't be an important quality. And I do think, especially if you see them in a one-game play-in or something against the Warriors and Steph Curry just goes off, that's where things get kind of interesting for a team that we all had atop our favorites for this season. You, you mentioned the, the play-in, by the way. In the West right now, the play-in would be Trailblazers, Warriors, Grizzlies, Spurs. There's some really talented, good mm-hmm. teams that are fun to watch. Like, I love this play-in. I don't care what anybody says. Well, you know. We'll figure it out. Uh, speaking <laughs> of speaking of Curry, by the way, once again, super hot and mellow doing big things individually, but not yet with a team. Maybe this is the year. By the way, coming up, we're going to be joined by a head coach who made the leap from pro hoops to college hoops. What led to that decision? And does she feel bad doing it just days before the start of the season? We'll get into it next. ESPN Radio, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Just a week and a half away from the WNBA season. A lot of changes for the Atlanta Dream in the offseason. New ownership. Got rid of a president-GM joint. And now new coach. At least an interim coach for now. Because Nikki Collin has taken the job at Baylor. We'll talk to her now. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio. Joining us on the Goodyear Hotline is the new head coach at Baylor. filling some pretty big shoes as Kim Mulkey departs. Nikki, let's just start with the obvious. You got 11 days till the WNBA season. This offer pops up as Kim Mulkey leaves. What was the decision-making process for you like? Well, you know, I mean, in these 
these searches, they happen really, really quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for me, um, it, it was a family decision. It was, um, it was a long-term decision. It was stability. Um, I love the people at Baylor. It may have happened quickly, but uh, from Mac Rhodes to his whole staff, um, just kind of the love uh, that I felt from them about this place and about this program, um, talking to Scott Drew, like there were just so many pieces to it that felt right. And sometimes there's a, a right place at the right time. Coach, how did your players react when you broke the news to them? My players were incredible, and I'm assuming you mean players in Atlanta. And so, you know, because I, I think that changes obviously very quickly. But um, I was incredibly emotional, um, you know, and uh, I love that team. Um, we certainly built that team through the draft and free agency and, and you know, was, was all in with that team uh, when this opportunity popped up. But, you know, they were – incredible with me Uh, many of them you know stepping up and saying like coach we're really happy for you I mean universally um, happy for me understood why I was making this decision and understood that I was emotional about it because of my relationships with them Um, but that even though timing is bad um, in terms of when the season was starting that I didn't have control of that you know the Baylor job was open now um, and, and so I think they were universally happy uh, for me and for this opportunity. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking to new Baylor women's basketball coach Nikki Collin, formerly with the Dream. A lot of changes over the offseason, Nikki, and Fitz and I were just talking about the break. It's kind of funny to get through the tough stuff. You got through the wobble. You got through all of the activism. You got through leading a team through a difficult time with an owner that they didn't want to be affiliated with, eventually leading them to help flip the Senate. You come out of all that into what should be a great 25th season for the WNBA. A lot of high expectations, massive ratings coming out of the wobble, and that's when you leave. Is that strange at all to you, the timing of all this, especially with so much uh, going on in the offseason for this team? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it, it seems strange, I, I think, but who planned for the Baylor job to be open? You know, let, let's start with that. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone, you know, expected Kim Mulkey to, to not still be at Baylor. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, there were so many, there were so many changes for the dream. Um, and, you know, but even losing, you know, my GM four days before the start of the season, you know, really um, was, was difficult. Um, Christianka was somebody that, you know, really believed in me and uh, was a big part of, of our building our roster year in and year out. Um, and, and so, you know, for me, um, while that wasn't certainly the deciding factor, um, you know, this job was the deciding factor. The people here were the deciding factor. These players were the deciding factor. My family was the deciding factor. And I will be a huge WNBA fan. Coach, you mentioned uh, nobody expected the job to be open, and we all know Coach Mulkey is a, a legend on that campus. How do you go in and sort of assert who you are and bring your personality to this program out of the gates? Exactly that. I have to be me. You know, I'm, I'm not Kim. I'm not going to try to be Kim. Um, she built this program um, into a monster, and I mean that in the best possible way. Um, 
what she's done here is is really nothing short of spectacular. And so I know they always say you don't want to be the coach to follow the legend. You want to be the coach that follows the coach that follows the legend. Um, but ultimately, I'm confident in who I am, and I, I know I'm up for the task. And, and certainly uh, big shoes to fill, uh, but excited for this opportunity and know that I have the backing um, of, of Mac Rhodes and the university president and, you know, everybody involved here. Baylor coach Nikki Collin with us here on Spain and Fitz. You said big shoes, sparkly high heeled shoes. And I am not usually one to talk about fashion when it comes to sports, but it is impossible not to mention Kim Mulkey rocking animal prints and Python leather pants and high heels and sparkles. Um, is there any pressure to follow in the fashion footsteps of Kim Mulkey, do you show up at Baylor and worry about expectations for your game day fit? You know, I think um, I've always loved fashion as well. I um, think I can rock a pretty good heel on the sideline. And, um, you know, we'll just bring my own personal style to the sideline here in Baylor. Always respected how much fun she had, um, kind of putting her, her looks together. And, uh, you know, hope, hope that I you know, can, can pull it off as well. <laughs> Coach, you obviously have a lot of familiarity from being a college assistant before you went to the WNBA. What's the biggest adjustment going to be for you getting back into the college game from the program? I think the biggest thing is just, you know, putting the staff together, um, you know, reconnecting with these players, you know, understanding the database, who are the 22s, who are the 23s, um, because I think that's the – I'll learn quickly. I, I'm not going to be outworked in that area. Um, but, you know, certainly we always knew in the, the pro game who maybe the top players where everyone knew who Paige Beckers was, you know, coming into to college. But, you know, it's knowing who the best ninth graders, 10th graders are. Um, that, that's going to be the biggest challenge is kind of getting up to speed and catching up in the recruiting side. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. Nikki Collin with us on the Goodyear Hotline, formerly of the Dream, new head coach at Baylor. Nikki, remember a couple years ago, Brianna Stewart during her SB speech talking about how she wants the same fervor and fire that people have for collegiate basketball and especially during March Madness and her time at UConn transferred over to the WNBA. There are a lot of people talking about how we don't usually see people leave head coaching gigs in the pros for collegiate opportunities. There's there's a number of reasons here, right? The, the position that Kim Mulkey made famous at Baylor is obviously one very recognizable around campus, maybe more so than being the dream coach walking around Atlanta. There's a lot of money in the college game, in part because the players aren't paid, so you don't have to worry about that. All the money goes to the coaches. There's prestige at the collegiate level because of alumni connections and the pageantry of it all and March Madness. While the WNBA is in its 25th season, it's still relatively nascent and looking for those fervor, you know, those fevered fans that are going to show up. How much did you take into account the prestige and the role that a coach plays at the pros versus college? I mean, the interesting thing was when I got into the WNBA, it wasn't because I had the ultimate dream to be in the WNBA. It was an opportunity to work with Kurt Miller, and he happened to be in the WNBA. Um, So it was a relationship thing. It was an opportunity situation. I wasn't in the pros looking to come back to college. This was an opportunity you know, that just was too good to pass up on. And, and the more I learned, uh, the more I wanted to be a part of this Baylor family. Um, you know, I, I think the beauty of college athletics is how 
um, in a great athletic department. You know, you have the baseball team pulling for the softball team, who is pulling for the tennis team, who is pulling for the basketball team. And it's just a huge family environment. And, you know, to to kind of be immersed in that um, is a special thing. You know, to to be a mentor is a special thing. You know, as a mom, um, mentoring matters to me. Um, I have the utmost respect for the WNBA. I love the game, absolutely love the game, loved my time in that league, want to see it continue to grow and flourish and expand. And, you know, and, and I want to be at Baylor helping players get there because I know how special it is. Coach, being around the WNBA, i got to ask you, player empowerment, the, the use of their voice is such a big deal. Now you go to college where at Baylor that may not be as accepted. How will you handle sort of giving these women their voice in the college level the way that you have at the WNBA level? A little more delicately, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, But I think, look, I spent the entire last year um, learning to walk a delicate line, you know, with um, being in a situation where I was paid by an ownership group, I was trying to support our players and their voices, and it was complicated, and it wasn't ever easy. And, you know, I wanted to walk alongside those players and walk behind them. Um, you know, I, I believe in servant leadership. And so, you know, I, I think it's a situation where, you know, I just have to understand the parameters and, and be open and honest with, with our players um, here at Baylor. Awesome stuff, Coach. We really appreciate us giving up. Uh, appreciate you giving us the time. Good luck with the new gig. Thank you so much. Thanks, Coach. New Baylor women's basketball coach Nikki Collin with us. Brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Coming up, some greats have something to say about Aaron Rodgers, and none of it is nice. It's coming up next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Is a box of rocks. Cry then, retire, give up. A lot of people have some very strong thoughts about Aaron Rodgers. Things they want to say to him. People who have a history in the league and who played the position who now don't seem to have much sympathy for the Green Bay signal caller. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Warren Moon, Brett Favre, Terry Bradshaw all chiming in on Aaron Rodgers and his desire to get out of Green Bay. Here's what Warren Moon said on Sunday morning on ESPN Radio. I think it's a little much. Uh, You know, I I really think that uh, they're just being a little bit too greedy now. I think a little bit too sensitive. If all these things bothered him about what happened with with, uh, Jordan Love and, and all those things from last year, that stuff should have been voiced last year and taken care of last year, but it sounds like it hasn't. And I just kind of question the timing of when all that came out on draft day, one of the biggest days of the year for all these young guys, and all of a sudden he wants to take the uh, the thunder away from them a little bit. Okay, so we're worried about the sensitivity of the new draft picks and criticizing the sensitivity of the Hall of Famer. We're asking him to complain in the moment, which he did and has for the last half decade, about the decision-making of this team. So it's interesting to me that they they aren't applying the same logic across the board. It's not interesting. It's just stupid. And and the smart people do dumb things. But this feels like so out of touch, right? And so here I've got Warren Moon, who's a legend, and his voice carries impact to a lot of people, coming out and saying these sorts of comments. And it only fuels the fire that seems to exist where guys that played the game a long time ago are pulling the back in my day. And I don't understand 
why we want that. It's a little like uh, complaining about the fact that people use calculators because you weren't allowed to do that at mm-hmm. one point in math class. Right. Like if things get easier, if life gets better, if there's more empowerment for the people that play the game that you play, why is that a bad thing? And I, I just I refuse to understand it, especially given the damage that happens to football players over time. And you, and you hear about what their bodies go through and the understanding we want young players have to what old players uh, had to sacrifice. Then we don't understand like why the the reverse isn't happening makes no sense to me. For, for Aaron Rodgers to not get the backing of former players it makes it, it's maddening in my mind. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Warren Moon says that Terry Bradshaw decides to come out and focus on on mostly the issues that Aaron has with his GM Brian Gutekunst. Now we know that he was frustrated with the drafting of Jordan Love last year and the fact that Gutekunst didn't let Rodgers know ahead of time. But you also have to take into account the other things, like not restructuring his contract so that he can be released after this season, no guaranteed money left, yada yada. But Bradshaw mostly focused on the issues that he has with Jordan Love's drafting. He was on Moose and Maggie on WFAN and said, him being that upset shows me how weak he is. Who the hell cares who you draft? He's a three-time MVP in the league, and he's worried about this guy they drafted last year at number one. And then he said, for him to be upset, my God, I don't understand that. Pittsburgh drafted Mark Malone number one, Cliff Stout in the third or fourth round. I had them coming at me from all angles. I embraced it because when we went to practice, I wasn't worried about those guys. They didn't scare me a bit. So I don't understand why he's upset at Green Bay. Continues to say, here's what I would do. I wouldn't budge. Let him gripe. Let him cry. Retire. You're 37. Go ahead and retire. See you later. I'm really strong about stuff like that. It just makes him look weak. How dare you draft somebody? Obviously, he doesn't need the money. Probably should just retire and go do Jeopardy. Either he gives in or Green Bay don't give in. Move on. And then at some point calls him dumb as a box of rocks. So my issue with all of this is, to your point, not being able to look back at an empowered quarterback who wants to, some say, in what the what the team does around him, and believe that that's a positive thing, but to call it weak, to talk about crying, and to try to compare the draft situation that's completely different from one where they have prevented themselves from drafting anyone that helps you take the next step. They got whooped by the 49ers and proceeded to draft two guys that were third stringers and didn't help them at all. Then they come back out. They're getting really close again. Again, they don't draft anybody to help the offense. They don't even draft meaningful uh, uh, defensive players. They go out and get the quarterback to replace him, despite the fact that those guys are usually one or two years away, and Aaron Rodgers has plans to keep playing well into this contract. It makes sense to me. I'm not sure why all of these quarterbacks are so dead set on insulting him. I don't understand for Terry Bradshaw as well, like, why i mean the two comps are so different that that era of football this era of football the way the game worked at that point the way the game is covered at this point i mean terry bradshaw says it wouldn't bother him but i, I mean he's a human being you you telling me that if somebody half his age that that costs half as much money pops up on the fox sunday uh, show he's not going to look around and be like um don't love that like i think there's a a human element to some of it it it's to me it's maddening that we have to a- apply one side is obviously insensitive for any of it like it's really plain here. The Packers are doing exactly what they think they need to do from a business standpoint. They don't seem to care about anybody's feelings. Now, Aaron Rodgers is going to do what he thinks he needs to do from a business standpoint. Doesn't care about anybody's feelings. To me, I can just separate my heart from all of it and and any feelings from any of it and say, okay, I see where both sides are coming from. They're both uh, they're both very dug in on where they are, and I don't think there's a lot of happy medium like that. That's to, that that's not 
a hot take one way or the other on what it means for Aaron Rodgers. It's just at some point he's going to stand up for himself and the team's going to say no. And to me, I just think it's so empty. It's such meaningless drivel to respond to somebody's issues with cry about it then or retire. You're talking about an MVP last season, Hall of Famer. What a strange response. Right. Meanwhile, when Tom Brady was disenfranchised with what was going on, disgruntled, I guess I should say, with what was going on in New England, there was all this conversation about it. I don't know what it is about Aaron Rodgers, and certainly we talked about it last night. There were sources telling you and others that people in that locker room and people in that front office wouldn't miss him if he was gone in terms of personality. He rubs people the wrong way sometimes, but so does Tom Brady. Right? I mean, not necessarily as much as a teammate, some of the other stuff. But it's very strange to me, and I'm trying to get to the bottom of why this reaction is so in defense of a Green Bay team that has not done what other teams do to make their franchise quarterback feel good, whether it's the Saints or the the Bucks or other teams. They haven't said to themselves, let's make this guy, who's the reason we're any good at all, happy. And and the fact that nobody, especially this former quarterback, sees that is odd to me. Yeah, so many people say that the Shield has more power than any of the people that wear the helmets because of the way the branding is done and loyalty lies for fans. I'm never surprised by that from fans. I am surprised to see that from former players. And it's something that, you know, I think there's a generational gap because I don't think more recent former players have any problem with Aaron Rodgers coming out and trying to, you know, insert his own uh, sort of ability to affect his own destiny. I think this is an old man get off my lawn moment for some of these players. Yeah. Brett Favre, who I don't really care what his opinion is, did happen to say he thinks if he has a grudge, he ain't budging. So it'll be certainly very interesting to see if he budges or the Packers do. Coming up, a Packers great will join us to give us his take on the saga. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM channel. Lady, don't forget, get out there, subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You get some extended interviews, you get some exclusive content, get some fun, I promise. Wherever you get your podcast, get out there and check it out. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and uh, we're going to get some insight on all things Packers. We've been talking about Aaron Rodgers and what to do. So I figure out. I figure the best thing we can do is get somebody that knows this uh, organization inside now to get better insight on it. We are joined now on the Goodyear Hotline by Packers great uh, Leroy Butler. Leroy, you know this organization uh, better than anybody. How do they come to a kumbaya in the middle? where they work all of this out? Well, i tell you this. It's, it's, it's not as bad as people think in the building. At 1265 Lombardi Avenue, everything is actually pretty calm. I mean, it's business as usual because the biggest thing really is the draft. And the draft is what has always been a big deal, you know, in Green Bay. So when this alleged stuff came out with, Aaron Rodgers wanted to get traded and didn't want to be there or whatever. I think it caught them by surprise, but I I think they knew sooner or later that it would come out, that they had been talking for a while and they just haven't come to terms for whatever reason. But I think the thing that really robbed the draft because the the Stokes, the first-round pick from Georgia, he didn't get the headline he was supposed to get because you're thinking about a Hall of Fame quarterback, which is not as unprecedented saying he wants to go to another place. It was just big because we went through this before with Brett Favre and you just didn't think it would break the day before or the day of the draft. Leroy Butler is with us here. Super Bowl champ, four-time Pro Bowler. 
Packers, great. And you mentioned Brett Favre. A lot of people bringing that up, but Leroy, we all remember mm-hmm. the helicopters around Brett's house, the constant yeah. conversation yeah. about will he or won't he retire. That has never been an issue for Aaron Rodgers. He has said multiple times he wants to play into his 40s. He was just an MVP. As a you know dedicated member of this team, how do you see the treatment from the front office and GM to a certain Hall of Famer in not giving him input into the draft, in not renegotiating his contract so that he won't be a lame duck after this season with no guarantees. How do you see how they've treated him? Sarah, you make a fantastic point, and you have a fantastic question. Let's talk about treatment first, how you treat players. I would think if you look at Aaron Rodgers' bank account, you know they treat him well. But I kind of understand where Aaron is coming from. When I retired after 12 years, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I said, you know what, I'm going to move to Wisconsin, assuming, like Aaron is, that I would probably work with the organization moving forward, either working in a building or doing something on a coaching staff. It never happened. So I went to therapy, which I still get once a week. And I remember my therapist telling me it's not about you (laughs) it's about the Packers and they're the business they're going to run it the way they want to run it so take your feelings out of it and just work with you work with them when you know when it's feasible for you so in other words you got to make a living with the organization but you can make a living without it in other words you need each other until there is an expiration date Players don't really see it like that. So I kind of understand where Aaron is going but with the treatment. But as far as personnel decisions, no player should ever have this personnel decision because, for one, they don't put in the work. Another thing, what if it don't work out? I mean, do you fire Aaron Rodgers if, <laughs> if he picks a guy that's a bust? No, you don't. So you got to let the people upstairs do their business, but the people upstairs also have to get out of your way when it comes to the locker room. And that's the one thing, Sarah, I am concerned about. I don't know how the locker room is going to look at this. Guys in their 20s may say, well, it's kind of a head-scratcher. And then now you get the subliminal tweets, like from Devontae Adams, who may get an extension. So it puts him in a tough spot. So I just wish Aaron would eventually – just come out and talk about it so we don't have to speak for him. You're not putting your teammates in a tough spot. You kind of know what's – because the organization has said they're committed to him 2021 and beyond. That gives them some wiggle room. If it gets ugly, June 2nd, okay, let's talk. I think both sides, to me, have some blame in this. But I just never thought I would see Packer Nation split again – after what Brett is. So we're talking to Leroy Butler, former Packers great, 12 seasons with the team, and there's at least a conspiracy theory out there that Aaron Rodgers was so shell-shocked yeah. by what happened last year that the timing was not yeah, accidental. Yeah. He basically, Aaron Rodgers wants to come in and say, hey, I'm going to do to you guys on draft day what you did to me on draft day last year, and that, that gives mm-hmm. us the timing of the announcement. you buy any of this sort of like long-living bad blood that puts us to that point with these things? Absolutely not. That was, that was, that's what your grandmother says. That's too much like right. <laughs> no. It's not that deep. It really is not. I think for the most part, I don't think they told Brett Favre that they were going to take Aaron Rodgers. He just found out about it. 
okay, whether it was on TV, when he was dropping. But Brett, hey, man, listen, I'm just going to go play. But Brett gave them an out when he retired. And what Sarah's point is correct, Aaron says he wants to play until his 40s. That's the only difference. But I remember Sterling Sharp, who I think is a Hall of Fame wide receiver. I remember the night before we were going to play the Minnesota Vikings, he got in the meeting and said, guys, I'm not playing unless they redo my contract. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Now, you got to handle your business outside the locker room. Don't bring it into with the players. Well, guess what? Brett Favre gets up and says, guys, I'll throw it to whoever's open that we broke the meeting. They got his contract done the next day, which is fine. But the locker room was fractured because people were on Sterling's side, some people's on the organization side, and some people were just confused. But you have to pick a platform to protest. And that's basically what it is. And no protest is comfortable. All protests are uncomfortable because it's, it's one side not agreeing. But when you were thinking a partnership with a quarterback, which we all agree they all should be paid more, they should be treated differently, fine. But in the locker room, we're all the same. And I think that's the difference between the Green Bay Packers locker room because if you're a young guy and there is an off-season program, but you don't have to be in the building because of whatever reason, obviously because of COVID, but some teams didn't want guys in the building. It's okay because Jordan Love is not in the locker room with Aaron Rodgers. So the good thing about the way it is, they're not in there together. Now, had Aaron Rodgers not showed up for the off-season program, he would forfeit a half a million dollars. Now, yeah. I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> I don't know many rich people like to give money away. So they got to figure out that part, and then you'll know if he's really serious or not. Leroy Butler of the Packers with us here. Hey, before we let you go, just have to ask, what percentage do you think that Aaron Rodgers will be the starting quarterback for the Packers this season? 100%. Okay. All right. Confident that they're going to figure it out. Yes, 100%. Look at that. We'll take those. Those are good odds, Leroy. We appreciate appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much for joining us and giving us the insight on the Packers. Thanks so much, brother. Anytime. Take care. It's one of the craziest things about this is how varied everybody seems to be. We hear 100%, we hear 5%, and none of us are going to know. I'm telling you, this is DAC Part 2. We're going to spend all summer talking about this. ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. Tuck yourself in with host Nate Burleson and guest Justin Fields, Najee Harris, and Jamar Chase in the new Progressive YouTube series, Up All Night. The conversation is honest, the beds are small, and the snuggle is real. How am I not on this show, mother of God? Watch every episode of Up All Night exclusively on YouTube.com slash Progressive. I call Big Spoon. All right, when we come back, uh, next up, the NHL is throwing some absolute heat at one player for good reason. Plus, Jimmy G going full circle. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I want to get that you guys stink. So that we can play it every Monday during football season when I'm trying to get things off my chest. Spain and Fitz on ESPN I'm Radio. I'm going to work on that accent. I'm going to work on it. It wasn't my best work. Sarah Spain, I'm better Jason when it's coffee talk. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. Look, uh, you know, uh, your accent's far better. Like, I can't do any voices, any accents, any, <laughs> any of that. That is a definite weakness for me. It's a hole in my repertoire. I don't even try anymore. Uh, it's, it's, it's been beaten out of me. My friends have finally convinced me never to try anymore. But I do It doesn't love- stop Mina, so why should it stop you? <laughs> 
Yeah, Mina has more cool in her pinky than I have in my entire body. We all know that. Uh, so, Sarah, you and I are big uh, hockey fans, both of us, and there is a there's sort of an interesting development happening in front of our very eyes involving uh, the Rangers and the Capitals. Uh, obviously, for anyone that didn't see, uh, there was a just a grotesque moment uh, in a game Monday night for Tom Wilson, uh, Washington Capitals forward, uh, including one where he punched player in the back of the head while the player was face down on the ice during the second period. It led to an absolute brawl, uh, which then led to Wilson throwing Rangers star forward Panarin uh, to the ice. So just all over the place with this thing and Tom Wilson out of control. Now, for all of that, he was given a $5,000 fine. And the NHL basically said, this is the $5,000 fine and we're done talking about it. But it doesn't necessarily work that way as the Rangers have now put out a statement and they are calling for the removal of George Paris, who's the head of the NHL Department of Player Safety. So incredibly strong words from the Rangers who are basically saying, we're not going to take it. This punishment is not suitable and this is not okay. This is a Wilson issue. He's been suspended five times and prior uh, fines amounting to two different occasions as well. He was fined the quote-unquote maximum allowed under the CBA, which is 5000 for assaulting, uh, I think it's pronounced Buchnevich, and then that led to the issue with Panarin, which led to Panarin having a season-ending injury, only three games remaining, but still not ideal. Um, so a tiny fine is all they end up with. And the fact that they don't, haven't ever at any point during the five previous suspensions left enough of a mark on him or made him care enough about respecting the opponents out on the ice, that then becomes an NHL problem. He is an effective player who takes himself out of the game to do this stuff. And by getting off basically scot-free, it just reinforces that nothing meaningful will be done if he continues to disrespect those out on the ice with him. So this is... Not just a Wilson problem. It's not just a Caps problem, who, by the way, they tweeted out both bad grammar and an ill-advised sentiment by saying, and the Capitals chooses violence, which they then deleted, instead of acknowledging that there was a serious issue there on the, on the ice. And then it becomes an NHL problem because the, the league has evolved, and they have not. Their decision-making around some of these things um, seems to seems to be antiquated in the sense that this is what the fans want. Most don't, especially someone like Wilson that could be a good player when he's not pulling this BS. So I blame the NHL just as much for not being able to really crack down on guys who are multiple-time offenders, and it's been like this for years. If you can't convince a guy out there that the other guys out on the ice are are professionals as well, have families, are trying to make a living, and you don't get in the way of them continually causing injury and otherwise, then it's on you just as much as the player. A $5,000 fine for someone that, to date in his career, has earned $18.8 million and is sitting in the middle of a six-year deal worth $31 million, including a $16 million signing bonus that he's still being paid out. A $5,000 fine is absolutely laughable, and it doesn't send a message. I mean, that's the equivalent of telling most of us, well, you know what? You were late for work today. You don't get to go to Starbucks. Like, that's right. that's what five grand is to him. And that's why I think it's important. The Rangers statement, which says, uh, in part, the New York Rangers are extremely disappointed that Capitals forward Tom Wilson was not suspended for his horrifying act of violence last night at Madison Square Garden. Wilson's a repeat offender with a long history of these types of acts, and we find it shocking that the NHL and their Department of Players 
player safety, failed to take the appropriate actions and suspend him indefinitely. Also, it says later, we view this as a dereliction of duty by NHL head of player safety, George Peros, and we believe he is unfit to continue in his current role. I love everything about that because what the Rangers are saying is that I don't care what's collectively bargained here. Something needs to be done. And if teams don't speak out loudly and demonstrably, you know, demonstrably, with, thank yeah. you, in these instances, then this is what you end up with. Players will continue to do this and get away with it. And we're going to let Tom Wilson do this until somebody ends up missing 60, 70, 80 games because of something absolutely savage and inappropriate that he does on the ice. There's no place for him on the ice until he learns how to play hockey the way you are supposed to play hockey. Yeah, I completely agree. And the issue is that the CBA would have allowed for a suspension and they decided not to. They instead decided to go with the fine, which can be limited to $5,000. And to your point, we've seen this in the past with the NHL and they need to have extreme responses to sometimes not extreme acts. I don't know if this was necessarily a horrifying act of violence, right? I do think punching a player in the back of the head when he's lying prone on the ice and the play is dead isn't a good thing and is certainly a disrespect. But I think the egregiousness of the language and the way that they're approaching it is them attempting to offer up a, 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 a strength to their argument and, and, a, and a, a real severity to this incident that will make the NHL respond. Because by continuing to sort of let him off the hook and, and not overly punishing him for each additional uh, time that he does this, that's essentially saying it's not that big of a deal. And that's why... You know, you can go to an entire YouTube compilation of people doing things like this when they think that their goaltender is being disrespected because there's an opposing player pushing or getting near the crease or whatever else. But it just feels like at some point with certain players, I don't care if the punishment fits the crime. It needs to be more so because you need to prevent them from doing it in the future. This falls back a little bit to some of the conversation we had on the NFL level a couple of years ago with Vontez Perfect, who was eventually mm-hmm. just essentially kicked out of the league and uh, for, for something that most players would uh, turn around and say, well, that's only a few game suspension. But at some point, what at some point, the resume matters and what you've been doing matters to all of it. Speaking of resume, I don't know if you heard this morning, but Jimmy G was on uh, KJ and Z this morning on the morning show. Uh, interesting to me for the 49ers uh, that realistically, Jimmy G's life has sort of gone full circle, right? If you think about Jimmy Garoppolo, the kid drafted into New England to be the future, he hopes, maybe getting the cold shoulder by Tom Brady throughout that entire process. Now, it's funny, be careful, you know, what you wish for. If you say, well, I would have done that differently because the proof's in the pudding as he now understands that he's in a mentor role. But Sarah, I think Jimmy G's sort of in a win-win here because if he goes out, plays lights out for the, the 49ers, they go to the Super Bowl with a great roster that's suddenly healthy. That only helps his value and helps him find another landing spot. Yeah, I completely agree. This guy and Trey Lance only has, I believe, 138 passes at the collegiate level. Really high upside. Should be a great player at the pro level, but will likely not be ready right away. And so Jimmy G has an opportunity as a guy who's oft injured to prove himself in a great system on a great team and have a real chance at doing the best he can now and earning a spot elsewhere where he can be the starter when Trey Lance inevitably usurps him. This is one of the better situations for a guy who just watched the guy meant to replace him get drafted because Jimmy Garoppolo is competent. He has proved he can lead them to the Super Bowl. He already did it. He just needs to stay healthy and play well. And then eventually Lance will take over, and that's a bummer for Jimmy G fans in San Francisco. And if you wanted to stay with that team, 
but it's certainly a much better situation than so many other players who watch their watch their replacement get drafted. And I know it seems absurd at some level, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, to be saying Super Bowl with the 49ers, but games lost to injury by starters was a staggering number for San Francisco last year. They are an incredibly talented team. Now, they've found themselves having a couple of bad years, uh, and it's funny, we just sort of forgive that under Kyle Shanahan, but injuries have been the sort of common thread, much like it feels like every year the Chargers are a great team on paper and then they have a hard time putting bodies on the field that's been the 49ers two of the last three years when they are healthy there's a good reason to believe that this roster can be a competitive roster that is in uh, the upper echelon of the nfc so all jimmy g has to do is do what he's done in the in the past frankly which is get you know in getting them to the super bowl he just had a year where play efficient football and you can get that done so if he does that especially given the way that young quarterbacks seem to flame out i think he's got a future somewhere else yeah, I absolutely agree. The question's always going to be about staying healthy, and it's going to be a number of seasons under his belt before people will not worry about that. Um, but I think his attitude, we heard him on KJ and Z this morning talking about all of this and being ready to lead and ready to teach. I think that's the best way to do it. And again, Trey Lance is not going to be ready right away, so Jimmy's got a real opportunity here. Yeah, and you know we've seen it repeatedly from guys like Alex Smith too. Like you can lead, and then you can still be you can still go somewhere else and have a heck mm-hmm. of a chance to to be dynamic. So uh, all the more reason that Washington is probably keeping a good eye for long term on how Jimmy G plays over there because they still and need, New England. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. There is no doubt about that. Uh, there's no doubt New England has our end. Coming up, Jimmy G going to be on Freddie and Fitzsimmons. I don't know yeah, that. I think and, Tom Brady too. Uh, and Brady, and Bill both Belichick. of them. And yeah. All three of them. It's, it's going to be a landmark Lance. night. Thanks so much for hanging out with Spain and Fitz. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.